Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Virginia Heffernan here. What you're about to hear is a preview of a Trumpcast Plus episode. We've now made one out of every four episodes available to Plus members only, and we don't want you to miss out. It's only $35 for the first year, and you get access to all of the shows on Slate Plus. You know, maybe today is the day you throw a few pennies a day at Slate. It lets you get all of our podcasts ad-free, including special episodes like this one. And you get front-of-the-line white glove treatment at Slate live events and, in general, bottle service in the Slate VIP lounge. You will also be supporting our work, which we deeply appreciate. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to sign up. And thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So this virus is exposing all the mortal failings in our immune systems, both the tendency of our bodies to underreact to novel pathogens, to novelty itself, and the tendency to overreact to those pathogens till the body burns itself out. That much I've learned from doctors returning from the so-called front lines at bedsides with the sick and dying. The vagaries of the immune system are also something, if I may push this metaphor, that has challenged America ever since 2016 when someone, someone, let's call him new, came to rack the body politic, to afflict us. Those of us whose immunities kicked in immediately and who began running a fever almost the day he was elected have had our all kinds of adrenal fatigue and even despair. And then those whose immunity was compromised, and in my view, often by influence operations on Fox and on the internet, saw the disease of Trumpism sort of settle into their bones. They began to talk the talk of Trump and normalize the unthinkable. Now, I don't like to use disease metaphors to talk about thought and language and votes, but I think the idea of immunity applies to artifacts of the mind as well as challenges to the body. A healthy cognitive immune system hears coronavirus is a hoax by CNN and rejects it as one would reject poison. It's just not right. A virus, a hoax by a television channel? This just smells bad, tastes bad. It's in disharmony with sensory evidence. To let oneself be fed something like that, coronavirus is a hoax by CNN, is kind of to cognitively collapse. And I really do see the dangers of a hyperactive immune system, like my own, people who see pathogens everywhere and work to shut down any entity with a slightly new odor calling it toxic. This might be something like cancel culture. Nope, 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 get out. You're not coming anywhere near me. This immune system eating itself on Twitter to fight off every person who wasn't critical of Trump beginning the year he was born or didn't detect coronavirus as a coming plague by at least late October. But the lowered immune system, and I mean sitting on Facebook near photos and news of aunts and cousins that make one lower one's guard, Amid headlines from mainstream newspapers that make it seem as though Trump has a point that should be reasonably addressed about, say, nurses being the real enemy in our time. And as usual, these newspapers claim there's just partisan squabbling in Washington. And all of that lulls one into a sense that there's nothing too bad about this world, that our brains can relax and we can leave the mental and biological doors unlocked, the keys in the ignition. And while cancel culture and the hyperactive immune system that you see on Twitter can absolutely be exhausting, 
I think the immune system that just gives up is far sadder. So we've got to do what it takes to balance these things, to move in harmony with the bugs and pathogens in our information ecosystem and our ecosystem ecosystem, because as we adjust to this new virus and slowly but surely move to acquire our immunities without being defeated first, remember that's what we're up to right now, we need to be both relaxed and alert. I always think of that phrase. It was what my pediatrician told me to look for in my my newborn, my first child, this expression of relaxed alertness, serenity and awareness. Think of how a curious baby looks, and let's try to be like that. My guest today is Frank Figluzzi. He's a former FBI assistant director and an NBC News national security contributor. He has a recent piece in Vanity Fair that opened my eyes to a new way of seeing the commitments of doctors Burks and Fauci, the members of Trump's coronavirus task force. He argues intriguingly that Burks and Fauci are in some ways hostages to Trump, that they must, he says, draw out their tenure on the task force keep themselves from being fired, keep themselves enough in Trump's good graces that they can stay on and do service to their nation. They've got to draw this out the same way we're all trying to flatten the curve in order to save lives before Trump fires them, or worse, rejects all their research and projections and opens fire on the rest of us by denying us care in a time of pandemic. I was a little skeptical of this argument, but I must say I think Frank brought me around. See what you think. Welcome to Trumpcast, Frank. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. First off, for listeners who don't know about your past, maybe you can talk about especially your work on hostage negotiations and dealing with kidnappings. This was as you were part of this FBI squad. Talk us through that just so we get some context for the recent piece. Yeah, sure. For those who who don't know, um, I spent 25 years in the FBI and uh, actually retired several years ago as assistant director for counterintelligence. That, that means that I headed up all espionage investigations for the U.S. government. And throughout my career, um, I've had some uh, diverse experience, but but two of them that are pertinent to um, the Vanity Fair piece that I, I just uh, had published and, and our discussion today relate to kidnap and ransom. And, and one was when I was in FBI Miami, uh, an incredibly active FBI field office, as you can imagine, we had, we were what's called an extraterritorial field office, meaning we were one of five offices in the FBI that had responsibility overseas. And Miami, no surprise, had responsibility for all of Latin America. And so we would res- we had a squad that did nothing but respond to kidnapping of Am- and abduction of Americans throughout Latin America. And so you become, when you oversee that kind of program, you become adept at uh, watching the hostage negotiators who are highly trained, skilled um, folks um, and negotiate down a ransom and you learn those techniques. Um, but I also earlier in my career had run a one of the few crimes against children squads. And I did that in the San Francisco FBI division. And that meant that we responded uh, not only to some horrific uh, child uh, sexual exploitation cases, but we responded to all kidnappings. We became very adept at not just child kidnappings, but we eventually responded to all kidnappings in Northern California. And again, my exposure to the outstanding hostage negotiators in the FBI was there. And then even when I retired from the FBI, I went with a Fortune 10 company um, as a corporate security executive in a very huge global, well-known company. And 
that company had people exposed throughout the world in places like Africa and Latin America and kidnap and ransom was something that we had to deal with in the corporate world. Wow. So I've become knowledgeable on uh, what it looks like to get your way through a hostage scenario. And that's what led me to the Vanity Fair piece. It's an amazing route. And what interests me most about this time is how many different fields of expertise people have brought to bear on this catastrophic period. And I mean, the last four years, not just the last three months of the coronavirus. You always bring something new to it, and especially in this Vanity Fair piece. So what does hostage negotiation and FBI work have to do with the current period of handling this pandemic at the level of the federal government, you say something extraordinarily interesting and kind of wild. You take some chances in this piece, and I really like that. You offer advice to the two um, public health uh, medical doctors who are closest to Donald Trump and advising him. That's uh, Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci. Um, and the, the article is addressed to them like a letter. Tell us about it. So a couple of things. One is I'm uh, having held various leadership positions in the FBI. I became a student of leadership, not not, of course, because I ever perfected it, but rather because I was trying to constantly learn what a good leader is. And so I am I, a student of leadership in a crisis, crisis management. So I've been watching Trump throughout this. As I studied Trump, try to lead in a crisis and struggle with that. I actually started focusing more on Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and their predicament. And when I say predicament, I mean that I saw an uncanny similarity between what they were dealing with and what I've seen in terms of a hostage or captive scenario and what hostage negotiators do to survive their captor. Now, here, here's what I mean by that. I saw a lot of people recently get all over Dr. Burks when she came out in press statements praising Trump, saying that he was using his business acumen to focus on data and understand the scientific uh, details. And a lot of people said, oh, she has drank the Kool-Aid, right? I am the one of the people who said it. I thought she had gone the way of the at least three other MDs who have truckled to Trump, who've subordinated themselves to Trump over the, uh, over the history of his life, starting with the doctor in Queens, the podiatrist who helped him dodge the draft by diagnosing bone spurs through mm. his two doctors um, as president. The first who said, you know, he would be the most the healthiest president in history. And then the second, Ronnie Jackson, so-called candy man for distributing Ambien and Xanax and so forth, also called the president superhuman with genetics that would, you know, astound us all. And I thought there is a way that he gets professionals in his pocket. And here goes Dr. Burks. We wouldn't have seen it. She was in the army, but here she goes. And we've seen this before. You did not read it that way. No. And I'm not saying that she um, isn't on the cusp of going over the edge because, yeah, yeah as, as you said, who can forget, uh, who could, will never forget Dr. Jackson, the Navy doctor at the White House, <sighs> yeah. just perspiring heavily through that press conference where he, he was just spinning the physical exam results for the president's. But yeah, so the president's a very strong personality. He does, he can subsume professional experts around him. And so the, the article I wrote was an open letter to the two doctors saying, look, you, you're in a critical position in, in a sense, very figuratively, you are kind of being held hostage right now. And you've got to negotiate your way to all of our safety, our, our safety and health not to over-exaggerate, is in the hands of these two doctors 
who are trying to convince Trump every single day to do the right thing, just as someone who's being held captive may have to every day negotiate for their survival and convince their captors not to kill them. So killing them figuratively would be knocking them off of the task force. We can't have that. At the minute these two experts get kicked out because they pissed off the president, we are all in jeopardy. So I saw Dr. Birx's adulation, public adulation of the president as a technique to survive. And, and I wanted to call that out and put that in there. And my open letter gives them basic tips, hostage negotiation 101 for Burks and Fauci. That was our preview. Aren't you compelled to hear more? You can. Just sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to listen to the full episode and get all our podcasts without ads. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus.